Mundak Upanishad is going to be the third in our series. The first one, long time back, was the Mandukya Upanishad with the Mandukya Karika. And um, the reason I did that was the Mandukya Upanishad is the shortest and the most powerful of the Upanishads. Um, the classic story when Hanuman goes and asks Ramachandra that how do how does a mumukshu, a person desiring moksha, liberation, how does that person get liberation, enlightenment and freedom? And Sri Ramachandra tells him that you should study the Mandukya Upanishad. Mumukshunam vimuktaye mandukya mekameva alam. For the liberation of those who seek liberation, there's a precondition there that one must seek liberation. <laughs> so those who seek liberation, for them, the Mandukya Upanishad is sufficient. And then suppose if you study the Mandukya Upanishad, study means study is in that way, fulfilling the preconditions and really trying to grasp it. And you still don't get liberation, you don't get moksha, then what? And then Ramachandra proceeds to give a list of 108 Upanishads, including the Mandukya. So that's pretty threatening, that if you don't get liberation by studying the Mandukya, you have this whole syllabus of 108 Upanishads. Um, so that's why I started with the Mandukya Upanishad. It's also my favorite. It's it's the shortest, extraordinarily powerful, gets directly to the point. Um, and the Mandukya Karika is one of the foundational texts of Advaita Vedanta. Mandukya Karika composed by Gaudapada. Shankaracharya's Guru's Guru about 14 or 1500 years ago. So that is pre-Shankaracharya, but it's foundational for Advaita Vedanta, the Mandukya Upanishad with the Mandukya Karika. Um, and then after completing that, it's like going straight to the top of Mount Everest. And now we can take the scenic route. Mm. Uh, then we take a look at the other Upanishads. So for these other Upanishads, actually there is a, a, a verse which I have recited other times, gives you the list of 10 Upanishads. Shankaracharya, Gaudapada's disciple was Govindapada, his disciple was Shankaracharya. He wrote commentaries called Bhashyas uh, on these 10, arguably 11 Upanishads. But these 10 are regarded as the major Upanishads. So they include the Mandukya. Isha Kena Katha Prashna Munda Mandukya Titirihi Aitareyam Chachandogyam Brihadaranyakam Tatha. Now, in these 10 Upanishads, the Chandogya and the Brihadaranyaka are massive. They are uh, big texts. The Mandukya is the shortest. And uh, among the short Upanishads are Isha Upanishad and Kena Upanishad. Somewhere in the mid range are these Upanishads, the Katha Upanishad, which we did. Uh, last time. And now the third one, which we're going to do, uh, is the Mundaka Upanishad. The reason I selected the Katha Upanishad, it's the most popular. Um, Swami Vivekananda's favorite Upanishad was the Katha Upanishad. And the Mundaka Upanishad is just a little more, um, I would say, a little more, what do I say, um, more philosophical. Um, the Katha Upanishad, as you re uh, remember, it spends a lot of time on the story and the build-up. You know, the Lord of Death gets to the point eventually and does it with style, but a lot of build-up. Whereas the Mundaka Upanishad starts straight away it, um, with the question about the ultimate truth and the answer about the ultimate truth. There's a little bit of a criticism of ritualistic religion 
and then the the whole thing is advaita vedanta um, the highest non dual truth so that's the mundaka upanishad which we are going to do now um what else do i say oh for indians it's very interesting it's it's a very famous upanishad in the sense that um there are famous quotes from it so our motto national motto in india satyam eva jayate truth alone prevails that's taken from this upanishad it's a direct quote from this upanishad and there are beautiful very beautiful sublime um poetry that is there so we'll we'll see all of that the mundaka upanishad and my plan is after the mundaka upanishad we'll get down to a couple of the short upanishads isha and kena upanishad so that's the plan books i recommend this book but you can have any book really anything that has the original mantras and the english translation will do but this is eight upanishads translated by swami gambhiranand ji uh, except the two big upanishads chandogya and brihadaranyaka the other eight of the list of 10 upanishads you'll find it in two volumes here in this book this is volume 2 this is volume 1 and volume 2 uh, it contains the original upanishad english translation of the upanishadic mantras um, and a translation a very precise english translation of shankaracharya's commentary it doesn't co- contain the original sanskrit con- uh, commentary of shankaracharya but an english translation of the commentary and swami gambhiranji i think of all the translations i have read he is the most precise he was uh, a very erudite very saintly and a very strict monk of our order he was the 11th president um i have very vague memories of seeing him just once when i was a, uh, a toddler so so we must have created an impression because i have no other memories from that age <laughs> um all right so i'm going to use this book but there are other books also which you can use and uh, for the sanskrit i'm going to use the gita press which i always use this is a handy volume with nine upanishads actually um yes so let's start this upanishad is by the way from the atharva veda we know the upanishads are embedded in the vedas so for example um the mandukya upanishad which we have already done is also from the atharva veda this is from the same veda mundaka and mandukya are from the same veda the atharva veda but the upanishad we did last time katha upanishad that is from the yajur veda yajur veda yeah just some information now i'll start as you know the upanishad start with peace chants i'm going to start with the peace chant and uh, another interesting thing to know is the peace chants are common to the vedas so all the upanishads from the atharva veda will have this peace chant you will notice that we did this this peace chant for the mandukya upanishad because it's from the same veda the atharva veda and this peace chant for the mundaka upanishad now um the yajur veda has a different peace chant which we did for uh, katha upanishad so the peace chant or shanti mantra om bhadram karne bhi shrinuyama deva bhadram pashye makshabhirya jatraha ಸ್ತನುಷ್ಟುಷೇಮ ಸ್ವಸ್ತಿ ನಾ ಇಂದ್ರೋ ವೃದ್ಧಶ್ರವಾ 
स्वस्तिनूषा विश्वेदस्तीनस्ताक्षोरिष्टनेमी स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दा ओं शाति 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 ओम ओ गाड्स रेफरिंग टू द वेदिक गाड्स मे वी हियर ऑस्पेशियस वर्ड्स विथ आवर इयर्स वाइल एंगेज इन सैक्रिफाइसिस मे वी सी ऑस्पेशियस थिंग्स विथ द आईज वाइल प्रेजिंग द गाड्स विथ स्टडी लिम्स मे वी एंजॉय अ लाइफ दैट इज बेनिफिशियल टू द गाड्स मे इंद्र ऑफ एंशियंट फेम बी ऑस्पेशियस टू अस May the supremely all-knowing Pusha be uh, propitious to us. May Garuda, the destroyer of evil, be well disposed towards us. May Brihaspati ensure our welfare. Om, peace, peace, peace. So anybody can chant this mantra. It's a prayer for welfare. But uh, as students. of advaita vedanta we chant it so that we are um, you know our body is healthy our senses are healthy you know it starts with the ears maybe hear what is auspicious so our ears are healthy it's very important because that's what we are using for vedanta study first and foremost um so and in this case hear what is auspicious means let us hear the knowledge of brahman um that just reminds me that um, among the vows that we take for becoming a monk a sanyasi one of the vows is henceforth let us speak of high things henceforth let us speak of high things brihad vadeem uh, these heroic spiritual seekers we shall now speak of high things not of uh, low or mean things henceforth um i remember this monk um whom i really revered a wandering monk traditional monk from i used to go and listen to his talks um, so he would always always speak about brahman about vedanta about spiritual he would never talk about uh, worldly things at all and then one day he told us why he said that many many years ago his guru had told him that whenever people visitors come to you start talking about brahman the ultimate reality because otherwise they'll start talking about the world don't give them an opportunity to talk about the world start talking about brahman and he really took it to heart i never ever the few like one and a half months i have seen him on two occasions never ever heard him speak of anything worldly um i i re- remember first time i saw him soaring advice even before i opened my mouth i just bowed down to him he was sitting there wearing a kopina which is the traditional loin cloth monks wear and uh, he started speaking about the ultimate reality how do you live in this world cautions about spiritual life and it's few minutes so inspiring that i rushed back to my room in the monastery and wrote it down and i've carried it all my life that's been what uh, 20 years now more than 20 years i still have it so always speak about the highest don't speak about anything worldly sri ramakrishna used to say my ears are getting burnt up by listening to the talk of worldly people um even fun one day swami vivekananda was making fun of sri ramakrishna and that was after sri ramakrishna had given up the mortal body and some of the other people visitors were uncomfortable somebody said to vivekananda you shouldn't make fun of sri ramakrishna 
And Vivekananda looked at him uh, scornfully and said, should I make fun of you then? Meaning thereby, even the, you know, the butt of my jokes, uh, the, uh, you know, when I'm being humorous and uh, making fun, uh, it's still about Ramakrishna, about, you know, spiritual life, not coming down to any other level and so on. So let us speak of high things. Let us listen to what is auspicious. This is the prayer. And you notice the prayer is directed to the Vedic gods, again showing us the Vedic context of these Upanishads. We are studying it thousands and thousands of years later. And for modern Hindus, for example, our religion has evolved to more a worship of deities like Krishna and Rama, uh, or now Ramakrishna, or the uh, deities which are Saguna Brahman, which is Vishnu, Shiva, the many forms of Vishnu and Shiva, the Divine Mother, Kali and Durga and so on. But this was an earlier context where the Vedic gods to whom the Hindus offered, uh, the Vedic Hindus offered sacrifices, fire sacrifices. So these prayers are directed at the Vedic gods. And these gods were seen as powers of that ultimate reality, Brahman. So like God, God rules the entire universe, but doesn't do it himself. He has a whole set of, you know, assistants who take care of different departments. So there are assistants looking after different forces of nature and those are the Vedic gods. They look after different senses, for example, in our body, the powers. All right, enough said about the peace chant and we'll be doing it every time we do. We have this class. Now, before I start, let me just quickly touch upon some comments that Shankaracharya makes in his introduction. So Shankaracharya, whenever he writes a commentary to these Upanishads or Gita, Brahma Sutra, he always writes a fine introduction. And the Mundaka Upanishad is no exception. Um, so he begins with a comment. He says, in the very beginning of this Upanishad, you will see a list of teachers and students. This one taught, you know, Brahma taught this divine knowledge to Atharva, Atharva taught it to Angir, Angir taught it to Bharadwaja, and Bharadwaja taught it to Angiras, Angiras taught it to um, Shaunaka, and so on. A lineage of teacher and student is established, thereby showing that uh, this knowledge is transmitted down uh, from most ancient times, from prehistoric times, from time immemorial, uh, by a spiritual lineage of teacher and student. That's why you'll see if somebody comes up and says, Oh, I, I, don't, I don't bother about teachers, students. I don't bother about tradition, lineage. I don't read these Upanishads, Gita or something. I have come upon, upon these realizations all by myself. Well, he might have, but it's of no value to the rest of us. It's only when there is a lineage in which a lot of people, and I'm not just saying the Advaita Vedanta lineage. There could be a devotional Vaishnava lineage. There could be a, a tantric lineage and so on. A Buddhist lineage, a, a Christian lineage. But there must be a lineage where many, many people have attained liberation, have become sanctified. And that shows that there is a purifying, uh, spiritualizing power in that lineage. If you have stumbled upon enlightenment by yourself, could be, could be quite possible. Uh, but how do I know? And how do I know that I'll get any benefit out of it? Uh, how do I know that this person is not a fraud or deluded or something? So lineage is very important in Vedanta, in all the ancient Indian traditions. Um, Shankaracharya says here, Mahadbhi parama purushartha sadhanatvena gurunayasena labdha vidyayati 
श्रोत्री बुद्धि प्ररोचना या विद्याम मही करोती दिस नॉलेज इज एक्सॉल्टेड बाय टॉकिंग अबाउट लीनियज ऑफ टीचर्स ऑफ माइटी सेजेस फ्रॉम इमेमोरियल टाइम्स वाई इट शोज दैट परम पुरुषार्थ the ultimate goal of re- uh, human life is moksha spiritual liberation freedom that's the purpose somebody asked me just today what's the point of all these religions and spirituality and so on the point is uh, moksha nirvana salva- salvation um, mukti whatever you call it there are many many names for it it is the ultimate transcendence of suffering it is the ultimate um, the uh, uh, attainment of what can actually be attained ultimately in this life it is knowing what can ultimately be known uh, it is um, uh, uh, it is the uh, the uh, acquisition see uh, acquisition um, uh, and um, doing and knowledge so you have, by this spiritual path you have done what has to be done in human life you have attained what has to be attained in human life and you have known what has to be known in human life and in fact in all life so this is called parama purushartha the ultimate goal the ultimate goal of human life you know people say it might not be mine most people don't seek these things well it's just because we are not wise we are seeking i have said this time and time again unknowingly we are seeking this whenever anybody seeks pleasure whenever anybody seeks knowledge anybody seeks fame anybody seeks to li- stay alive and live yeah. um uh, there was a one vedanta teacher who put it very beautifully not knowing our sat nature that we are pure being immortal being we have what is called um jijivisha that the thirst to remain alive in this body not knowing that we are chit pure consciousness which makes all knowledge possible we have jigyasa the desire to keep on accumulating more knowledge in this one limited mind not knowing that we are ananda bliss itself we have bubhuksha the hunger for tasting pleasures in this world see what a beautiful formulation satchidananda your existence consciousness bliss you do not know that you are immortal existence therefore this terrible urge this unconquerable urge to stay alive in this body the, f- the terrible fear of the de- death the greatest fear of our lives um because we do not know we are pure consciousness and therefore this uh, ceaseless striving to know things in detail uh, we do not know that uh, we are ananda itself and therefore this uh, hung- hunger this thirst for sense pleasures trying to get a little bit of going around with a begging bowl in the world and getting a little bit of pleasure of the senses yeah. sat chit ananda because we do not know that to know that is the goal and then he says gurunaya sena labdha these mighty sages with great effort they have discovered this they have uh, uh, they have attained this knowledge and passed it down to us out of great compassion gurunaya sena with with a heavy effort with with great effort so one must be uh, respectful of that that what has been given to us very precious thousands and thousands of years later we are still reading the mundaka upanishad um so it has come down they put in mighty effort sri ramakrishna this is almost the same thing in simple bengali 
he says that just as a man goes about collecting wood and with great effort lights a bonfire in a cold night and five other people come and warm themselves from that fire. Similarly, there are sages who with mighty effort have discovered God realization, have attained God realization and then taught others and others come and listen to their teachings and attain peace. Um, attain peace is, I translated that, but actually the, literally the words Sri Ramakrishna used are very, very touching and inspiring. He said in Bengali, Arupadjon, Tadir Upodesh Shune, Ishore Chittosthir Kare. Others, five others, they come and listen to their teachings of these great teachers who have attained God realization. And here's the beautiful phrase. And steady their minds, settle their minds on God. I think, you know, it something stuck a chord in me when I heard that phrase for the first time. This is what we have to do. By yoga, bhakti, vedanta, service, whatever, meditation, tantra, whatever you want to do. To settle down on God, to settle down on that highest reality. Ishore chitto sthir kare. That's all we need to do in life. The rest will take care of itself. We, our problem is, either people are not interested, but here we are all interested. So why aren't we attaining enlightenment? It's because we're interested. We settle down on God and then flicker and fly away here and there and again come back to it. We don't, we don't stay with it steadily. You don't have to stay with it too, steadily for too long. Few months, few years is enough for enlightenment. All right. So, Shrotri Buddhi Prarochanaya with, in order to uh, encourage, inspire the listeners, the intellect of the listeners. In order to inspire the intellect, uh, attract or inspire the intellect of the listeners. That's why the um, this description of the lineage of sages and the glorification of the knowledge. It's advertisement. Basically, it's adver advertisement. Thousands and thousands of years ago, before we invented, before we had... Uh, um, what, where is that? Advertisers in New York of famous... Is it Madison Avenue or something? That, yes, Madison Avenue. So thousands of years before Madison Avenue, these guys, they got, they got it. They got the idea. You have to advertise it so that people uh, are attracted to it. Then the next point he makes is that prayojanam. So the goal will be pointed out. What will you get out of all of this? The same question which today somebody asked me, what is it for? That goal will be pointed out in the Upanishad itself. The Upanishad will not only teach you the, the highest science, enlightenment, God realization, but will also tell you what you get out of it. Prayojanam asakrit bhavati iti and that the knower of Brahman is Brahman or becomes Brahman. Becomes means already is Brahman, so realizes oneself as Brahman. Paramrita parimuchanti sarve goes beyond death and attains final liberation. Such things will be said uh, in the Mundaka Upanishad later on. It's going to come. Um, okay. Shankaracharya, um, often, many times, he pushes, plugs monasticism. He was a monk, he was a king of monks, and he makes a big deal out of monasticism, and he wants people to become monks. So here he makes a remark. 
ज्ञानमात्रियद्यपि सर्वाश्रमिणाम अधिकारः तथापि संन्यास निष्ठैव ब्रह्म विद्या मोक्ष साधनम न कर्म सहित दिस उपनिषद विल पॉइंट आउट दैट फर्स्ट ऑफ ऑल इट इज ट्रू दैट एनीबडी कैन गेट एनलाइटनमेंट एनीबडी ही सेज सर्वाश्रम इनाम इट इज फॉर पीपल हु आर हाउस होल्डर्स आश्रमस मीन द फोर आश्रमस द स्टूडेंट्स ब्रह्मचारी हाउस होल्डर गृहस्थ the those who have the forest dwellers who have completed the children have grown up and you retire into you haven't become a monk formally but you retire into um like you go into semi retirement and uh, you pursue spiritual goals so it's that is called vanaprastha literally the forest dweller and finally sanyasi the monk who has given up all attachments to the world and he says though it is open to everybody students householders retired semi retired people and monks all equally can get enlightenment but specifically uh, the, the great sadhana the, the the practice one of the greatest helps in enlightenment in brahma vidya knowledge of brahman realization of brahman is sanyasa becoming a monk he says sanyasa sanyasa nishtheva to taking to the life of monasticism actually formally becoming a monk uh, is a powerful help in um, uh, in the search for enlightenment there's a technical meaning first of all he gives quotations from the upanishad mundaka upanishad which we are going to read to support his position bhikshacharyam charanta it will be said in the mundaka upanishad that they take to the life of living on alms which is a technical way of pointing to monks um ियसिकुअल्स and it would be the man of the house who would do that um mostly these rituals would depend upon householders so you will have to be a married person uh, to do that you not a monk a monk is not supposed to do that in fact a monk is defined by giving up those rituals so one of the things even now when we become monks we renounce now we, we never really did those vedic rituals but you actually formally renounce those vedic rituals or then only you are a, you are a monk you do not have a right to perform those rituals so he points out the two cannot go together life of performing vedic rituals and um sanyasa life monastic life cannot go together one is karma karma means action here it means ritualistic action the other one is vidya vidya means knowledge here it means brahma vidya the knowledge of brahman the two cannot go together um why not well the upanishad itself will criticize the life of action life of uh, ritualistic action it say it will say that by performing these vedic rituals we are not saying they are false but what you, what will it gain what will you get out of it you will get good karma you will go to heaven after death and those are temporary heavens you come back to this world you will have a pleasant life in this world again you do those rituals vedic rituals you go to heaven but it is just an extension of samsara all of that comes to an end how long will you want do you want to enjoy these pleasures they are just refined worldly pleasures other worldly pleasures are just refined worldly pleasures so it's an extension of samsara there's nothing spiritual about it nothing true about it 
and the upanishad will say give it up stopped um <laughs> that uh, reminds me swami vivekananda when he came here he shocked a lot of people good christians in america when he told christians here his, his audience audience was entirely americans and they were christians he said i have not come here to teach you how to go to heaven i have come here to teach you how to stop going to heaven <laughs> you can imagine how stunning that sounded but he was just saying exactly what the upanishad is saying we have been going to heaven most of us we are heavenly folk we have enjoyed heaven in many many different forms higher and lower heavens all of them have come to an end and we keep coming back to this as they say the veil of tears so this has to stop there is a more philosophical reason why shankaracharya keeps on harping he will say here ब्रह्मात्म एकत्व दर्शन सह नही कर्म स्वप्न the straightforward interpretation is if you're going to be a non-dualist you're not going to you're going to stop doing actions like you're not going to give up your job and you're not going to do uh, rituals or puja uh, you are just going to listen to upanishads and sit and meditate or some such such thing no 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 what is meant is that um, um philosophically the two do not go together he says what he says is right even in dreams you cannot combine them action and um, the knowledge of non dualism because they are contradictory action depends upon real divisions in the world when you have action um, if really you want to talk about action then you are for example in a vedic ritual you are the priest and there is the fire and there is the oblation the sacred ghee which has to be poured and there are mantras there are ritualistic actions to perform and there'll be a result at the end of it hopefully all of these are different and distinct entities you and the fire and the ghee and the ritual and the result of going to heaven they're not all one and indivisible they're all different you are going to go to heaven after death or the person for whom you are performing this ritual you are promising you will go to, that he will he or she will go to heaven after death so time space this world that world differences between people it's entirely a worldly affair and based on difference whereas non dual knowledge shows you one undivided reality and one unbroken ocean of existence consciousness bliss and you are that tattvamasi you are that reality so who will perform action what action for what from that perspective so a world of real actions with end real ends and means cannot be combined with real non dual brahman however i hope this part is clear philosophically non dualism and dualism cannot exist at the same plane they are they are contradictory however real non dualism can happily exist coexist with an appearance of dualism real desert which is dry without any water can happily exist with a watery oasis real space there which is actually really colorless can exist with looking blue you know like a deep blue sky it isn't blue but it looks blue 
So it's not really a color of the space. Similarly, there's no really no water in the oasis mirage in the desert. And the mirage has no water, but it looks like that. Similarly, even in the life of a jnani, the appearance of activities, body, mind, speech, whatever the enlightened one does, all those things can continue. That explains how great um, enlightened ones also performed great action. Shankaracharya himself, most active life. All his life he was active. Vivekananda, most active life. Buddha, most active life. So fully enlightened. Shankaracharya especially holding that enlightenment and action cannot coexist together. What he means is non-dualism is real. Brahman is real. And the world of divisions, actor, action, goal of action, they can exist as an appearance. World can exist as an appearance. So an appearance of action can fully be combined with the reality of Brahman. Yeah. That thing has to be said. Now, the last point which he makes. All right. Just here, what about then his insistence on monastic life? Sannyasa. So, does that mean we cannot become enlightened if we are not monks formally? No, it doesn't mean that. Because he clearly says, enlightenment is open to, knowledge is open to people of all ashramas, all um, stations in life. Um, man or a woman, married or unmarried, young or old, with a job and a career, or sitting in an ashram in a cave, everybody can attain enlightenment. He's, he clearly mentions that. But he just says that monasticism is a very powerful uh, support. It's a sadhana, mukhya sadhana, primary support if you formally renounce worldliness. And it, it tallies very well with uh, the idea that a um, life of worldly actions or ritualistic otherworldly actions is contradictory with, with, the, uh, with the highest knowledge. That, that's what he pointed out. How are we to understand it? We should take it seriously. Whether you are a monk, whether you are a monk uh, externally uh, or not, one must internally be a monk. There's no use being a monk externally and internally full of uh, greed and anger and lust. No use. Um, there is a very common saying in India that, um, Oh yogi, you have colored your cloth, but you did not color your mind. So... You've colored your cloth, the, the color of renunciation. But that color of renunciation has to be in your mind. And that color of renunciation uh, has to be in our mind. And that's that's compulsory for everybody. That's compulsory for Whether you're a householder or a, a monk or whatever. Uh, ultimately, internally, one has to become monk-like. Internally, one has to become monk-like. And that's what you see in the lives of all enlightened persons. And when they become spiritual, they become less worldly. The more you go towards God, the more the world falls away from you. And that's good news. Um, final point in the introduction. The word Upanishad. The Upanishad. The word Upanishad, he gives the etymological and the spiritual meaning of that. Upani. Upa means near. Approaching the teacher, the teachers will be mentioned. Approaching the lineage of the spiritual teachers. Approaching this knowledge, Upa means coming near. Or sitting near. Um, ni means with clarity, nishchaya, without any doubt. Attaining clarity. And how do you attain clarity? Shravana manana nididhyasana. You hear, study it systematically. Hear, listen to these talks, read the book, think it, then think it through. Manana, think it through. Understand it, grasp it, clarity. 
And finally, when you have got the knowledge and clarity, stay with that clarity. If it helps, sit quietly with eyes closed in regular meditation, Vedantic non-dual meditation. Here they will talk about meditation later on. Um, and make it a living reality. That is me with clarity. Make it a living reality. A realization that I am Brahman, this non-dual reality. And then Upani Sat. So the etymological meaning of Sat, there are three meanings of that. One is that which takes you to Brahman. I'm not giving you the Sanskrit, I'm just giving you the English, the basic meaning. That which takes you to Brahman. This is the knowledge. When you get clarity, when you make it real, it will take you to Brahman means it will show you that you are Brahman. That you are the absolute reality. You are not just this limited body, mind, this personality. That's one meaning. It takes you to Brahman. That means it makes you realize that you are Brahman. One. Second, it destroys ignorance, delusion. Sat means also destruction. destruction. Not destruction of Brahman. Destruction of ignorance. It destroys ignorance about our real nature. And third, it loosens the bonds of samsara. There's a technical meaning in which it is used. But basically, even long before you become enlightened and free of samsara, it will continue to loosen the bonds of samsara, this teaching. The more real we make it, it loosens the bonds of samsara, the suffering in samsara. This is the meaning of Upanishad. Approaching it, the teacher, the lineage, the knowledge itself. With clarity, it will show you that you are Brahman, it will destroy ignorance and delusion, and it will loosen the bonds of samsara, meaning of Upanishad. Upanishad. All right. Now let me start the Upanishad. As was mentioned, um, it's going to start with glorification of this knowledge um, by mentioning a lineage of mighty sages from whom knowledge has come, this spiritual knowledge has come. And these mantras are also very, very beautiful. Before I go ahead, when I talked about meditation, that reminded me, the Upanishad will also talk about non-dual meditation. And it will talk about a form of meditation which is very interesting. Archery. Archery. Bow and arrow. And later on, we'll talk about that. Uh, I gave a talk about it. I think Vedantic archery. <laughs> um, and how interesting. In far away Japan, they developed archery, actual archery, into a form of meditation. There's something called Kyudo. Kyudo. Uh, K-Y-U- uh, Dio, Kudo. If you look it up on YouTube, you'll see. If you even see the videos, it's very, very meditative. They are lose, uh, They are shooting arrows at a target. But the point is not really to hit the target. The point is you're supposed to sit in meditation, then take the bow and the arrow, put the arrow on the bow and stretch the bowstring, um, and then um, you know aim, breathe in, breathe out, and release the arrow. All in perfect form. There's a specific form for doing all of it. It's difficult and all very meditatively. So I was thinking, in Japan they actually did it. Meditation based on shooting arrows, <laughs> archery. But it's mentioned here, thousands and thousands of years ago. Non-dual meditation based on the... Um, Pranamo dhanu sharohi atma brahmatal lakshamuchyate He says... Om is the bow and the self is the arrow. You are the arrow and Brahman is the target. Without error, 
picks the um, arrow on this this mighty weapon ohm and shoots so that the self becomes indivisible with the target that means the arrow becomes indivisible with the target the self becomes indivisible with brahman it's a way of putting it you are brahman but you get the idea so that will come later all right let's start now let's make a beginning i like this because this upanishad was one of the first which we were as brahmacharis uh, we were made to memorize and the way we, Swami Atmapriyananda Ji, who was in the university in Belurmat, he used to teach us, he used to teach me at least. And uh, what he would do is, instead of saying that memorize it, he would spend some time of the Upanishad class just chanting. He would chant, we would repeat after him. He would chant, we would repeat after him. And we, we memorized it. So it's very nice. Om Brahma Devanam Prathama Sambhuva. Vishwasya Karta Bhuvanasya Gopta Sabrahma Vidya Sarva Vidya Pratishtam Atharvaya Jeshta Putraya Praha Even the sound of this Vedic Sanskrit is so noble and sublime and poetic. What, what was said just now? The first mantra Om Brahma, the creator of the universe and the protector of the world, was the first among the gods to manifest himself. To his eldest son, Atharva, he imparted that knowledge of Brahman that is the basis of all knowledge. This is the meaning. So what happened? So what's going to happen now is they're going to mention a lineage of five teachers. And then we come to the student, Shaunaka, who will ask the fifth teacher in this lineage uh, about the knowledge of Brahman. But a lineage of five teachers, one after another, will be mentioned just to show this is a knowledge handed down since time immemorial. It's the importance of lineage and tradition and so on. Where does this come from, knowledge? It starts with among the gods, Devanam, Prathamasambhuva, um, Brahma, who's the first among the gods. So this is all, uh, um, you know, our ancient uh, cosmology, which we learned as kids in India. I mean, I had at least learned it from. There were these comic books, Amar Chitrakata, very nice comic books when we read as little kids. So there you see um, God, who is Vishnu, who is lying on the mighty serpent, thousand-headed cosmic serpent, uh, Sheshanaga or Anantanaga. And then from his navel, what happens when creation starts? A lotus blooms. And then Brahma, not Brahman, Brahma, the creator God appears on that lotus. So this is all uh, uh, very symbolic and a lot of philosophy goes into this. So basically the, the story is when Vishnu, when God wants to create the universe, when does he want to create the universe? All the time. Creation, existence, destruction of the universe, again, repeat. So again and again, the cycle of creation, existence and destruction is going on. So when Vishnu wants to create the universe, the first thing that is manifested from his power, that is from the uh, lotus in his, the lotus blooms, and on that you will see seated iconography, beautiful iconography is there, you can always see these pictures, and sometimes images and pictures. Brahma comes into being. He is the first among the gods, gods with small g, gods. Brahma is identified with the mind. You know what it is like? Each of us, we do this every day, from deep sleep, when we wake up, 
Our first experience is of our own mind, thoughts, ideas, sense of ego. That is Brahma. You in deep sleep, you are Vishnu. And uh, at the individual level, the causal state. Then when Brahma appears, is the mental state. And then you become aware of the external world and this body. So that is the physical state, the gross. So causal, subtle, gross. Uh, gross means not in a gross, in the American gross, it just means physical. That's what we repeat every day. Right now, we are awake in the physical world. And of course, we have a subtle body, mind, and the causal body also. And beyond that, you are the pure consciousness. At a cosmic level, pure consciousness with the cosmic causal body or maya is God, Vishnu. And from that comes the cosmic mind, which is Brahma. And from that, the cosmic body will also come, Virat. The body itself is not Virat. The mind itself is not Brahma. The causal body, Maya itself is not Vishnu. The consciousness plus Maya is Vishnu. Consciousness plus Maya plus all minds together, cosmic mind is Hiranyagarbha or Brahma. Consciousness plus Maya plus all minds plus all bodies, the physical universe is Virat or Vishwarupa. Um, if all that's complicated, just look at your our daily sleep, dream, and waking cycle. That's what happens, basically. Um, among all the gods, Brahma was first to be created. So what does Vishnu do? He creates Brahma, projects him. When? Every cycle, every universe. At the beginning of every universe, first mind, cosmic mind appears, Brahma. And then Brahma does everything else. So he's like the contractor. You want the universe to be created? Vishnu wants the universe to be created. He can't be bothered. He's relaxing on his cosmic couch. He's a bit of a couch potato. But he gives the, all the work to Brahma. Gives Brahma all power, knowledge, and says, "Set, go to work. Make a universe. So Brahma then creates all the other gods and the heavens and earths and, and then projects all jivas who were latent in Maya, projects them into this universe, gives us bodies, and, um, you know, we work out our karma lifetime after lifetime as long as this universe lasts until we get liberation or we are again absorbed back when uh, Vishnu dissolves this universe in the form of Shiva. We, again, everything is absorbed back into the power of Maya of Vishnu. All of us, all these worlds and poor Brahma. Brahma too is again absorbed back into Vishnu and Vishnu goes into I think he's, he snores ever so softly. He goes into a cosmic deep slumber. So that's the beautiful way it's depicted. But our point here is Brahma is the first of the gods to appear. And then what did Vishnu say? Vishwasya karta. Make this universe the creator of the universe, the architect of the universe. Bhuvanasya gopta. Um, protects the universe which has been created. Um, also, the first among the gods means literally the first among the gods. All the other gods come after Brahma. But um, another way is, Shankaracharya comments, is the greatest among the gods. First in the sense of the greatest. He has, um, uh, Shankaracharya says, um, he says, Mahan dharma jnana vairagya ishwarya tarvan anyan atishetiti with Tremendous, great knowledge of, uh, of, of uh, great dharma, knowledge, dispassion, glory. All of these great qualities are in Brahma. So he's first among the gods, more glorious than all the gods. Now, what did Brahma do? 
besides creating the universe, he taught Vedanta. He taught Vedanta. Sab Brahma Vidyam Sarva Vidya Pratishtham Atharvaya Jeshta Putraya Praha. To his firstborn, his firstborn son, eldest son was Atharva, who was another, a great sage. Um, so don't ask for details. How did he get a son if the worlds have not been created? And uh, how could this greatest of gods have a son? Is he a human son or a, some kind of divine son? What? Don't bother. So just say that Brahma had a son and his, his, this eldest son, his, his name was Atharva. And what did Brahma do? He taught him Vedanta. And when I read this, you know, I sometimes scold people, moms and dads especially, the, when they become enthusiastic about Vedanta, the first thing they want to do is to teach it to their kids. They impose it on their kids. And they say that we are sending them YouTube videos and books and they don't want to listen. And I scold them, don't do that. You know, it, it creates resistance. It creates... Uh, if it, give them the same uh, period of grace and uh, same opportunities which you had. You were not interested in it at that age. So let them... But, but, look at this. Uh, the same moms and dads can quote this back to me. Say, what did Brahma do when he created Atharva, the universe? First thing he did was he taught Vedanta to his eldest son. So there is a very good precedent for <laughs> giving Vedanta to your children. And that's true. You must, what, what I mean is, I, I don't mean that moms and dads should not give Vedanta to the children. They should. They really should. It's the greatest, greatest gift. But don't impose it on them. They have to do it intelligently. And don't worry if, if they don't seem to be interested at first. Keep giving it because you are supposed, it's a gift that you are giving. Among all things that you give, this is a great, great gift. And this will protect them and give them peace uh, in the years ahead in their lives. The great gift. I am eternally grateful to my parents because they were devotees and they left books of Vivekananda, other spiritual books lying around in the house. I remember the great... French philosopher, mathematician, uh, a scientist, Pascal. Pascal, he says, teach a boy to read and leave, live and leave good books lying around in the house. The child will take care of his own education. I don't know how true that is, but it really was true in my case because all these books were there and I was a bookworm, so I started reading all these books. And I'm also grateful to them that they didn't trust it on me. That's also interesting, whether by design or just by accident, they were not particularly bothered about whether I'm going to the ashram, whether I'm meditating, whether I'm reading these books. Um, they just uh, taught me, I mean, they just gave it to me, uh, these books, and took me to the ashram a few times and left me to my own devices. Uh, in fact, later they were worried that when I started doing it, whether I'm overdoing it, reading spiritual books all the time, going to the ashram so many times, they were afraid that I might become a monk or something. And, and they were right. <laughs> they were right. They were right to be afraid. All right. It was good not to trust it on um, kids, but you should share it. Yeah. So Brahma did the right thing. He, he set the right precedent by teaching his son. Next, he says, Sarva Vidya Pratishtham, this Brahma Vidya, knowledge of Brahman, it is the foundation of all knowledge. What a very interesting phrase. Brahma Vidya is the foundation of all knowledge, is the consummation, consummation of all knowledge. Sarva Vidya Pratishtha means all knowledge attains its consummation in Brahma Vidya, knowledge of Brahman. This you see in classical India. Whether it is uh, Vedanta, of course, it's knowledge of Brahman. But logic, um, then 
ritualistic action, the mimamsa, grammar, dance, music, architecture, all of it was spiritual. All of it was uh, Ayurveda. Whether it's medicine or grammar or uh, dance or music or architecture, everywhere at least it will be mentioned that the ultimate goal is God-realization. Ultimate goal is Brahma-vidya. And they meant it. How They will also even try to show how this will take you to uh, Brahma-jnana, the enlightenment, realization of Brahman. So, Sarva-vidya-pratishtham, all knowledge, branches of knowledge attain consummation, fulfillment, when you get self-knowledge or knowledge of the Absolute. Um, foundation of all knowledge, uh, another sense of this term is Brahma Vidya, it's about pure consciousness. And pure consciousness is that which makes all knowledge possible. Everything is possible, every, every experience is possible because of consciousness. And Brahma Vidya is about that consciousness. So that is the meaning of um, Sarva Vidya Pratishtham, the foundation of all knowledge. Um, when you get this Brahma Vidya, Vidya means knowledge, Brahman, the absolute non-dual reality. When you get knowledge, realization, then it is described as you have known what has to be known, you have achieved what has to be achieved in life, and the achieved means attained, gotten what you have to get in life, and done what has to be done in life. So action, acquisition, knowledge, all culminates in realization of Brahman. It's done forever. You, are, you have done what you, you have been coming here to this universe time after time. You have achieved it. Congratulations. You have gotten what has to be got. It's not money. It's not children. It's not property. It's not degrees. It's not Facebook followers. It is um, realization of who or what you, you are. And you have known what has to be known. All our knowledge is seeking of what's the truth here. You have found it. You now know the secret of the universe. So this is Brahma Vidya, Sarva Vidya Patishtham. Um, I just, although I'm running out of time, let me just mention here, uh, I, I mentioned in other contexts, Heidegger, but it's most applicable here. Uh, Heidegger, in his introduction to metaphysics, he says that we have, in Western philosophy, we have ignored the question of existence since the time of Plato. Existing things, world, self, God, all these things we have been talking about. But what is existence itself? Why does anything exist? What is existence itself? What is being itself? So Heidegger says people have ignored it. I have revived this great, greatest of questions. And he says the question of existence, being, is the widest question, deepest question, and most fundamental question. Why the widest question? So um, if so someone, uh, every field has its, uh, every branch of knowledge has its field of inquiry. If you are interested in human physiology, you're interested in the human body, but you are not interested in automobiles or quasars or quarks or number theory. You're interested in the human body. But something wider than that, if you are interested in biology, then you're interested not only in the human body, but all living bodies. You're interested in life itself. But you're not interested in, say, Again, number theory or quarks or superstrings or maybe um, black holes. Now, what is the widest possible science? The widest possible science which includes everything and excludes nothing. It will be the science of existence. 
everything that exists is included in this question. What is existence? So it is the widest question. You don't exclude anything. A smart guy might say, what about non-existence? You are ex excluding non-existence. But non-existence does not exist. So the, we no problem at all. Whatever exists comes into the purview of this question. What is existence? It is the widest question. The second point he makes is it's the deepest question. What do you mean deepest? So human physiology studied the body. Deeper than that is biochemistry. Um, you study the body at a more fundamental level. Deeper than that will be chemistry itself. You study all sorts of chemicals, not just biochemistry. Deeper than that will be physics, particle physics. You study the very structure of those chemicals, the uh, protons, neutrons, electrons, the quarks, even superstrings, the very structure of everything. Um, in this way, what is the deepest, the most fundamental level of all inquiries? It is existence, question of existence. So existence, question of existence, what is existence, is the deepest question. Widest question, deepest question. And then Heidegger says it's the most fundamental of questions. Fundamental by that he means something when you're inquiring about a virus or about, say, numbers, one, two, three, four. Uh, number theory, you, you want, you're interested in number theory, but you're not inquiring about yourself. So um, a question about black holes is not about a question about Stephen Hawking, the cosmo cosmologist. Now, if there's a question which is about everything and itself also, so that's fundamental. When you ask a question, what is existence? The question, what is existence, also exists in some sense. So it is also a question about itself. What is existence? That question is also existing. Among all existing things, that question also is a thing which exists in some way. So it is also a question about, not only about the universe, about all existing things, including itself, self-reflexive. So most fundamental of questions. So Heidegger said, question of existence, widest question, deepest question, most fundamental question. When I read this, actually, I mentioned it in different occasions, but what occurred to me, what struck me, immediately I remembered, Brahma Vidya, Sarva Vidya Pratishtham is the most fundamental of all knowledge. Most fundamental of deepest of knowledge, widest of knowledge, most fundamental of, beautifully expressed by Heidegger. Then what did, what did Atharva, the eldest son of uh, Brahma, what did he do? He taught his student. Now he doesn't say whether the student was his son or something else, but or just a student. His student was Angir, the sage Angir. And what did the sage Angir do? He taught it to his student. So his student is Bharadwaja. Bharadwaja. Um, and what did Bharadwaja do? He taught it to his student, Angiras. What did Angiras do? He will teach it to the student who will come now and ask the question, the fundamental question about the knowledge of existence, of everything. So the next mantra I will also read and stop. It is giving you the list of the next um, Next three teachers. First teacher, Brahma. Second, second Brahma student, Atharva. Atharva student, Angir. Angiras, uh, Angir student, uh, Bharadwaja. Bharadwaja student, Angiras. So this lineage, five teachers are mentioned. Teacher student lineage. Second mantra. Atharvaneyam pravadeta Brahma. Atharvatam purovachangire brahma vidyam sabharadvajaya satyavahaya praha 
भारद्वाजंगिसे परावराम The knowledge of Brahman that Brahma imparted to Atharva, Atharva transmitted to Angir in days of your Purovacha. We are talking about very, very ancient uh, history or prehistory. You might say that I've never heard of these guys. Uh, this, this prehistory, we, you wouldn't have. What did Angir do with this knowledge? He passed it on to Satyavaha of the line of Bharadwaja, Bharadwajaya Satyavaha. What did Satyavaha do? Bharadwaja Satyavaha, what did he do? It's one person, Bharadwaja Satyavaha. He handed it down to Angiras, this knowledge that had been received in succession from higher to the lower. Higher means earlier ones to the lower ones, or the greater sages to more recent sages. So it's been passed down. That's all. Then the next time we will come to our, the person who is asking this question on our behalf, the great inquirer, Shaunaka, he will approach the, the sage Angiras and ask the great question, which will set up the entire uh, Mundak Upanishad. And we are sitting nearby to listen to all of that. Good. Now, let me see if there are comments and questions. Sangeeta asks, would you say Ramana Maharshi is an exception to this lineage requirement? True, true. As far as we know, Ramana Maharshi did not get enlightenment from any particular guru, nor did he go and read Upanishads. You can't be so strict about this. I was just thinking, Sri Ramakrishna, the semi-literate, um, mad Brahmin uh, priest of Dakshineshwar, he, what Upanishad did he study from which spiritual master? Of course, he was initiated, Mantra Diksha he had taken, but then his primary way was to cry to the Divine Mother. He just wept and prayed and he got enlightenment, showing thereby sincere seeking is the most important thing. Yeah. This is a formalized way of showing the importance of teachers. But remember, Sri Ramakrishna, first of all, showed you can go straight to God and get enlightenment, God realization. But then he went about very carefully uh, following the lineage. So he followed multiple lineages, but all of them were lineages. They were teachers and students in these lineages uh, going back thousands of years, including the Vedantic lineage, Totapuri, Totapuri in the lineage. In fact, it's the same lineage we are talking about. Uh, he, Totapuri is a disciple in the Dashnami Sampradha, the 10 orders of monks set up by Shankaracharya, Puri. And that therefore, Totapuri's disciple is Sri Ramakrishna. So his real name is Sri Ramakrishna Puri. And we are all disciples in that same lineage. So our names, for example, it is Sarva Priyananda Puri. I told you the funny story of how in the Himalayas, once uh, I met another monk. I wanted to meet a real Naga monk. You know, they were either entirely naked or this particular specimen was wearing a, a loincloth, a kopina. And sitting near a fire, I went and asked him, what's your name? And he said, Purnam Giri. Fierce, like a, a rather skinny hawk. Purnam Giri. Tera naam kya hai? And what's yours? What's your name? I said, Sarva Priyananda. Immediately, he was on me like a ton of bricks. He said, I'll tell you in Hindi what he said. Oh, Babu ban gaya hai. Um, puri kya sabji ke saath kha gaya? Puri kaha gaya? Sabji ke saath kha gaya? He said, oh, you've become a dandy. You know, like a city dweller, a dandy, a gentleman. What happened to the Puri? The Puri is a play on the na name Puri. Puri means uh, 
they it means a city puri means actually a city puri also means the the bread the, which we uh, you know what we call luchi or puri in um, in in hindi so he said so did you eat it with your vegetables why are you ashamed of saying puri then i said um ha galti ho gaye i'm sorry i made a mistake my name is sarva swami sarva priyananda puri and he said ha babu ban gaye you become a babu like a dandy a city city dandy <laughs> yeah, yeah so the same lineage i can legitimately claim my lineage goes back to uh, through shankaracharya to gorapada back to the rishis of vedic age and shaunaka and angiras and so on and so forth back to brahma So is Ramana Maharshi an exception? In general, yes. Uh, but you know what we would say in India. Ramana Maharshi is not, he just didn't become Ramana Maharshi like that. Earlier lifetimes, he must have been, uh, a, he must have practiced and come very close to enlightenment or he attained enlightenment and just manifested in this life. Yeah. And there are those who are devotees directly in, in Ramana Maharshi's lineage. They would consider him, but this question is moot because like you say sri ramakrishna is an avatar even his enlightenment is part of the leela of shiva who manifested as, as ramana just to give us the teaching of pure advaita in this day and age punita ji says by sanyasa yoga uh, shankara means mental reinforcement not traditional sanyasa not necessarily traditional sanyasa um no he actually means traditional sanyasa shankaracharya is big on insistence on actually becoming a monk but practically what is necessary in spiritual life because he has already said everybody can become enlightened and he makes it also he takes up this question that there are any number of cases of householders becoming knowers of brahman especially in the vedic um, uh, tradition many of these rishis who were the te- beginners of this tradition they are householders they are married um, brahma himself is a householder because he is he has his first son <laughs> so um yes but he says it's a very very big help to formally become a monk kiran says does mundaka means yes that's a very good point kiran ji thank you does mundaka means sanyasa and does it have, have any other meaning so one of the meanings of this mundaka i forgot forgot to mention where does this name come from one meaning is the shaven head so this is the knowledge which was kept secret by the shaven headed ones mundaka uh, and this is divided into sections called mundakas also we'll see instead of chapters they are called mundakas the upanishad is also called mundaka and mundaka one of the re- meanings of mundaka is uh, mun- mundi that means shaven headed one uh, which means a monk so this was a secret knowledge kept kept secret by monks Gaurav says, when we investigate our being, we find that there is no one riding this body that is center of experience. There is consciousness and the objects are appearing in consciousness with no self as centered. When we ask, are you enlightened or claim someone is enlightened, we're generally asking or claiming, assuming that there is someone riding this body. But their assumption seems to be wrong. Am I thinking in the right direction? Absolutely. That's what will be shown. That the self, Atman, is not a thing. when you investigate carefully like you do in buddhism and also in advaita vedanta you will find there is no object no thing which is corresponds to this idea of i it 
not the body, not the senses, not the mind, not the intellect, not even the causal body, no objective reality. The entire thing appears to pure consciousness. So, okay, so then uh, pure consciousness corresponds to the idea of I? No, not in that sense. You can't, um, you can't make it an object. It's, it's ever the subject, never an object. So you are thinking in the right direction. If you just keep thinking in this direction and stop there, you will get Buddhism, at least the Theravada kind. You will get the, the idea of the emptiness of the self. That's the talk I'm going to give this Sunday. Shunyam. What does emptiness mean? It means exactly what Gaurav is saying. When you search for the self, you will not find anything. And if you stop there, that's um, Theravada Buddhism. And lot of, most of Mahayana Buddhism also. Only the highest, deepest um, knowledge revealed in Dzogchen or in what is that called? Mahamudra traditions in um, Tibetan Buddhism. They speak in hushed tones or just indicate this pure consciousness or pure, what they call the luminous void. Emptiness, which is also luminous. So it's not nihilism. So I'll leave it at that. And which state is Shiva? Um, here Shiva has not been brought in. In the Trimurti, Brahma is the creator, Vishnu the preserver, and Shiva is the destroyer. But Saguna Brahman, Ishwara, Bhagavan, if you take Vishnu as Bhagavan, Vishnu alone as um, Brahma creates. And here it is said, Brahma preserves, Gopta, Bhavanasya Katta, Vishwasya Karta, Bhavanasya Gopta, creator of the universe, protector of the universe. You would normally think Vishnu is the protector of the universe or sustainer of the universe. Vishnu is seen as sustaining the universe. And then as Rudra or Shiva, destroying means dissolving the universe, only to start it all over again. Basically, it's one God. It's, uh, in Vedanta makes it clear, it's Saguna Brahman. Good, that's a very good beginning. Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu